You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 233A, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Rosicrucianism and Modern Initiation. There's another small cycle in it, called Mystery Centers of the Middle Ages, uh, the Easter Festival, and the History of the Mysteries. That's four lectures at the end there, so ten altogether. Translated by Mary Adams and Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 5, given in Dornach, on the 12th of January, 1924. We have seen how the knowledge that we used to acquire in the olden days by means of instinctive clairvoyance gradually faded away into a kind of evening twilight. It is actually extraordinarily difficult to find any trace of that ancient wisdom in modern times, particularly since the 18th century. For all that is left to us now, or rather I should say, what has recently come in its place, is the external observation of nature and logic. And neither with external observation of nature nor with the mere sequence of abstract logical thoughts can we build a bridge whereby we can reach reality. Much of the ancient wisdom maintained nevertheless a sort of existence in traditional form right on into modern times, even as late as the middle of the 19th century. And in order that we may orient ourselves aright to the important subjects with which we shall have to deal, I would like to tell you today about some of the ideas that were still to be found in the first half of the 19th century as survivals of the ancient wisdom, in order that you may see how at a time that does not lie very far back there were people whose manner of thinking was entirely different from what it is today. As I said, it is exceedingly difficult to arrive at these things, for it is single individuals living alone or having around them at best a small circle of pupils who preserved the ancient wisdom in strict secrecy and often without themselves understanding it in all its profundity. And a similar picture has to be made of the conditions that prevailed in still earlier times for it is quite certain that the two characters familiar to you under the names of Faust and Paracelsus encountered in the course of their wanderings lonely individuals of this kind. You might call them cave-dwellers of the soul and learned a great deal from them that they afterward developed and elaborated through an inner faculty that was in their case too of a more instinctive nature. What I am now going to relate to you belongs, however, to a much later date. It will illustrate for you how things were in the early decades of the 19th century. Once more we find a little group, call it a school, if you will, a lonely school somewhere in Central Europe. There, in this very small circle, was to be found a deep and penetrating teaching regarding the human being. A long time ago I became aware on a spiritual path that at a certain place in Central Europe there existed a small community that had knowledge. 
As I have said, I learned to know of it on a spiritual path. I was not able at that time to make observations in the physical world, because then I was not in the physical world, but on a spiritual path I became aware that a small community of this kind existed. However, I would not speak of what was taught within this little community if the essence of what was hidden within it had not again disclosed itself to research made independently through anthroposophy. I would not speak of it had I myself not found that knowledge anew. For it is just in the refinding that you obtain the right orientation to the wisdom that has survived from ancient times, a wisdom that is truly overpowering in its greatness. Regarding this little community of which I speak, a tradition goes right back in history, back through the whole of the Middle Ages, into the times of antiquity that I was describing to you in the lectures given at the Christmas conference, into the age of Aristotle. The tradition does not, however, come directly from Greece. It comes from Asia, whither it was brought from Macedonia by Alexander the Great. Within this little community a deep and exceedingly exact teaching was given concerning the human being in respect especially of two human faculties. We can see there a spiritual scientist, for such they truly may be called, who was a highly developed master giving instruction. The ancient symbols by which they are taught consist in certain geometrical forms, Say, for example, a form such as this, see plate 6. At the points would generally be found some words in Hebrew. At first sight you can make nothing whatsoever of such symbols. And the pupils of this master would have known through the instruction they received that what, for example, Eliphaz Levi gives later on is in reality no more than a talking around the subject. For these pupils were still able to learn how the true meaning of such symbols is arrived at only when they are rediscovered in the being of our own human organization. There was in particular one symbol that played a great part in this little group. You have the symbol before you when you draw apart this, quote, seal of Solomon, close quote, so that one triangle comes down and the other rises. He played six. The symbol thus obtained played, as I said, a significant part within this little community or school, and continued to do so even as late as the nineteenth century. The master would then get the pupils to assume a certain attitude with their physical bodies. The body itself had to draw this symbol, in quotes. The master made them stand with their feet far apart and their arms stretched out above. Then by lengthening the lines of the arms downward and the lines of the legs upward, these four lines, which are darker in the diagram, came to view in the human organism itself. A line was then drawn to unite the feet and another to unite the hands above, and these two joining lines had to be felt as lines of force. The pupil became conscious that they really do exist. It became clear to him that currents pass not unlike electromagnetic currents, from the left fingertips to the right fingertips and again from the left foot to the right. 
so that in actual fact the human organism writes into space these two intersecting triangles. The pupil had then to learn to feel what lies in the words, quote, light streams upward, weight bears downward, close quote. They had to experience this in deep meditation, standing in the attitude I have described. Thereby they gradually came to the point where the teacher was able to say to them, quote, Now you are about to experience something that was practiced over and over again in the ancient mysteries. Close quote. And the neophytes did then actually attain to this further experience, namely that they could feel the very marrow within the bones of their limbs you will be able to come a little nearer to an understanding of such experiences if you recall something I said to you yesterday. I told you then, in another connection, that if we continue to think as abstractly as has by now become the custom, if we go on living entirely in abstract thoughts, we will, as it were, externalize ourselves. We will become something altogether external. The exact opposite happens when in this way we attain to a consciousness of the interior of the bones. Let me tell you something else that will help you to attain a clearer understanding. Paradoxical as it may sound, it is nevertheless true that a book such as my title Philosophy of Freedom cannot be grasped by logic alone. It claims the whole human being. You will in fact not understand what is said in the book about thinking, unless you know that we experience thought by means of an inner experience of our skeleton. When, however, as is the case in the philosophy of freedom, thought becomes concrete, becomes real, then it goes over into the whole person. The pupils of this master went even further. They learned to feel the actual inside of the bones, and that enabled them to experience a last example of what was practiced in manifold ways in the ancient mystery schools. They learned to experience symbols by turning their own organism into a symbol. Only so can symbols be truly experienced. Explanation and interpretation of symbols is actually quite nonsensical. So too is all theorizing about them utter nonsense. We have to make them We have to experience them. It is the same with symbols as it is with fables and legends and fairy tales. We have to identify ourselves with them. There is always something in us whereby we can enter into all the figures of the fairy tale, whereby we can make ourselves one with the fairy tale. And so it is with these genuine symbols of olden times, which come originally from spiritual knowledge. I have, as you see, written the words in your own language, see plate 6. There is very little sense in writing on the diagram. Hebrew words are no longer understood, for then someone who reads them will not be inwardly quickened. They will have no inner experience of the symbol. Rather, they will be cramped by it. They will feel as though their bones are being broken. That is also what really happens, spiritually, of course, when we take seriously such writings as those of Eliphaz Levi. These pupils then learn to experience the inside of their bony system. But, my dear friends, when you begin to experience the inside of your bones, you are really no longer in the body. 
If you hold your finger a few inches in front of your nose, then what you are holding there is not in you. Just as little is what you experience within your bones really in you. You go inward, it is true. Nevertheless, you go out of yourself. And this going out of yourself, this going to the gods, this going to the spiritual world, is what the pupils of that lonely school learned to grasp and understand. For they learned to know the lines the gods had drawn into the world, the lines that had been drawn by the gods to establish and found the world. They discovered in one direction, namely through the human being, the path to the gods. And then the teacher put into words what the pupils were experiencing. It was expressed in a sentence that will naturally sound ludicrous and paradoxical to many people today, but that holds, nevertheless, as you will be able to recognize a deep truth. See Plate 7. Quote, Behold the person of bone, and thou beholdest death. Look within the bones, and thou beholdest the awakener. Close quote. That is, the awakener of the human in the spirit. The being who brings humans into connection with the world of the gods. Now, in the time of which we are speaking, not very much could be attained on this path. Something, however, of the teaching concerning the evolution of the earth through its various metamorphoses became clear to the pupils. Through being able to place themselves into human spiritual nature, they learned to look back to Atlantean times and even further. As a matter of fact, very many things that were not in those times written down or printed, but related by word of mouth, concerning the evolution of the earth, had their origin in a knowledge and insight that came about in this way. Here, then, we have one of the teachings given in this school. Another teaching is also very interesting. The pupils were led to perceive in a practical manner that the human being stands higher than the animals. To appreciate this teaching, you must realize that certain facts we now put to use in various ways and are of great value to us, were known and understood even as late as the nineteenth century out of genuine old traditions. We pride ourselves today, for example, on having police dogs who are able to track all kinds of crimes. This application of the knowledge had not been thought of in olden times, but the faculty that shows itself, in this case, for example, in dogs, was better known than it is today. A very fine substance could be perceived around every human being, a substance finer than anything that can be seen or smelt or detected by any of the senses. And it was understood how there is also a kind of fine fluid belonging to the world as a whole. They recognized it as a special differentiation of warmth currents in union with all manner of other currents which were looked upon as being of an electromagnetic nature, and they connected the dog's faculty of scent with these currents of warmth and electromagnetism. The pupils of the little school which I am describing had their attention drawn to the same kind of faculty in other animals too. They were shown how this sense for a fine fluid flowing through the world was present in a great many animals. And then it was pointed out to them how what in the case of the animal develops downward in the direction of what is material develops upward in the human being 
into a quality of soul. And here we come to a teaching that is of extraordinary interest. It was taught in this school with reference to facts of external anatomy, but it points to a deeply spiritual truth. The teacher would say to the pupil, quote, Behold, humans are a microcosm. They imitate in their organism what goes on in the great universe. Close quote. Nor was it only in respect to the processes that go on within them that humans were regarded as a microcosm, as a little world. What shows itself plastically in us was also referred back to what takes place in the external world. So we find that profound and solemn attention was given, for example, in this school to the passage of the moon through the first quarter, full moon, last quarter, new moon. The pupils learned to watch how the moon goes through 28 to 30 phases. Plate 6, detail. They watched out in the cosmos the passage of the moon through her phases. They watched how the moon moves within her orbit. They saw how she describes her 28 to 30 rotations. And then, perceiving how the human spinal column has 28 to 30 vertebrae, they came to understand how the development of the spinal column in the embryo corresponds with the movement and forces of the moon. They saw in the whole formation of the human spinal column a copy of the monthly movement of the moon. And in the 28 to 30 nerves, that go out from the spinal column into the whole human organism, they saw a copy of the streams that the moon sends out down continually upon the earth as she passes through the stages of her path in the heavens. Actually and literally, in these continuations of the vertebra, they saw a reflection of the inpouring of the lunar streams. In short, in what the human being bears in the nerves of the spinal marrow, together with the spinal marrow itself, they saw something that brings us into living connection with the cosmos. Plate 6, detail. All this I have indicated to you was presented to the pupil, and they were then made to observe something else. It was said to them, quote, Look at the optic nerve. Watch how it goes from the brain across into the eye. You will find that in the course of its passage into the eye, it is divided into very fine threads. See plate 6, detail. How many threads? The threads that go from the optic nerve into the interior of the eye are exactly as many in number as the nerves that go out from the spinal marrow. There are 28 to 30 of them. So that we may say a spinal marrow system in miniature goes from the brain through the optic nerve into the eye. Close quote. Thus has the human being, so said the teacher to his pupils, received this thirty-membered system of the spinal marrow nerves from the gods, who in primeval antiquity formed and shaped our existence. But humans themselves have fashioned in their eyes, in their sensory world-beholding eyes, a copy of the same. There, in front of the organism of the head, they have shaped a copy of what the gods have made of them. See Plate 6, detail. And then the pupil's attention was directed to the following. The organization of the spinal column stands, as we have seen, in connection with the moon. But now, through the special relationship 
that the moon has to the sun, we have a year of twelve months. And from the brain, twelve nerves go out to the various parts of the organism, the twelve chief nerves of the brain. So that in this respect, too, the human being is a microcosm, a microcosm in his head, in respect of the relationship between the sun and moon. Actually, in the whole human form and figure, we have before us an imitation of processes out yonder in the cosmos. See plate 6 detail. The pupil was then taught to observe something else. We have seen how in the optic nerve, in the way the optic nerve is split up into 30 strands, the human being imitates the lunar system of the spine. And we have seen how 12 chief nerves go out from the brain. But now when the particular part of the brain that sends the olfactory nerve into the nose is examined, it is revealed that here, in that little portion of the brain, the whole of the brain is imitated. Just as in the eye the whole arrangement of nerves and spinal marrow is imitated, so in the organ of smell the whole brain is imitated, inasmuch as the olfactory nerve enters the nose in twelve strands. So that we have here in front a miniature human being, see plate 7 detail, And then the pupil was led to observe that anatomically we have no more than a mere indication of this miniature human being. Only the most minute anatomical investigation can disclose it. It merges and becomes confused. On the other hand, as it were in compensation, it finds expression all the more strongly in the astral body. Since anatomically there are no more than hints of this fact, it cannot be made use of in ordinary life. We can, however, learn to make use of it. And even as the pupil was shown how to experience the inside of their bones, so they were shown also how to experience in a really living way this particular part of their being. And here we come to something that is in truth more akin to the whole Western outlook than are many other things that come over to us from the East. For as is well known, the East also speaks of concentration on the root of the nose, concentration on the point between the eyebrows. This is how the exact spot is defined. And this concentration is in truth concentration on the miniature human being that is situated at this spot and can be grasped astrally. A meditation can actually be formed so as to enable you to apprehend something in that region which is like a miniature person in embryonic development. The pupil in the little school of which we are speaking received such guidance. They learned to apprehend in intensely concentrated thought a kind of embryonic development of a miniature human being. And then in pupils who had the aptitude for it, the two-petaled lotus flower could begin to develop. And they were told, The animal develops this faculty downward into fluid warmth and electromagnetism. Humans, on the other hand, develop what is situated up here in the head and nose. It may have first appeared to be merely a sense of smell, but the activity of the eye plays over into it, EYE. We develop it into the astral, 
and thereby acquire the faculty that enables us not merely to follow that fluid, as do the animals, but to evoke continual interchange with the astral light, and to perceive by means of the two-petaled lotus flower what our whole life long we are continually writing into the astral light. A dog senses only what has remained, what is present there. We have an altogether different experience. For even when we cannot yet perceive with it, we move with our two-petaled lotus flower, and as we move with it, we are continually writing everything that is in our thoughts into the astral light. We acquire at the same time the faculty that enables us to follow what we have written, and moreover to perceive something else, namely the real difference between good and evil. It was in such ways as these that echoes were still present of ancient primeval treasures of wisdom, and the rudiments of that wisdom were still taught, even practically. We can see from this how very much has been lost owing to the influence of the materialistic tendencies that began to work so powerfully about the middle of the nineteenth century. For such truths as I have been indicating to you were still experienced and known in certain circles, isolated and hermit-like, though these might be. And in the most varied domains of life, knowledge was still derived from such hidden sources, knowledge that was later entirely disregarded, and that many today are longing to find again. But on account of the crude methods that prevail in our time, the customary external cognition cannot regain this knowledge. Together with all else that was taught in that little circle, there was one very special teaching that was as follows. It was shown to the neophytes how when they made use of the faculty, which is really a sort of enhanced organ of smell that reaches up into the astral light, then they learned to know the true substance of all things. They learned to know matter. And when they acquired knowledge of the inside of their bony systems, and thereby learned to know the true and authentic world geometry, they learned to know the way in which the forces have been inscribed into the world by the gods. Then they grew able to understand the forms that are at work in the things of the world. Thus, for example, if you would learn to know quartz in its substance, so it was said to the pupil, then look at it with the two-petaled lotus flower. And if you would learn to know its crystal form, if you would understand how the substances are given shape and form, then you must apprehend its form that comes from the cosmos with the power of apprehension that you gain by living experience of the inside of the bony system. Or again, the pupil was taught as follows. With the help of your heads, you can learn to know how a plant is fashioned in respect of substance. And by learning to experience the inside of your bony system, you can learn to know how some particular plant grows, why it has this or that form of leaf and this or that arrangement of its leaves, or again why it unfolds its blossoms in this or that manner. Form, wherever it occurs, had to be understood in the one way, matter in the other way. And it is really most interesting to find when we go back to Aristotle how he makes his, this distinction with respect to everything that exists, 
the distinction between form and substance. In later times, of course, it was taught in a purely abstract manner. In the stream of culture that came from Greece and spread over Europe, the abstractness with which these things were set forth in books is enough to drive one to despair. And this went on throughout the Middle Ages, and in still more recent times has gone from bad to worse. But if you go right back to Aristotle, you will find that with him forms are referred to the experience I described. You will find he has also the insight to see in things, whenever the head is in question, that which he calls their matter or substance. Perceptions of this nature belong, however, to that part of Aristotle's teaching that was carried over into Asia. But now the inner knowledge, that is to say the knowledge that is derived from the Akashic records, the inner knowledge of the philosophy taught in Greece, points us to something of which I could naturally give no more than an external indication in my title Riddles of Philosophy, where I showed how Aristotle held the view that in the human being form and matter flow into one another. In the human being matter is form and form matter. You will find this where I am speaking of spirit in the Riddles of Philosophy. Aristotle himself, however, taught in quite a different way. Aristotle taught that when you approach the minerals, you experience in the first place their form by experiencing the inside of the bones of the lower leg, and you experience their matter, their substance, in the organ of the head. The two are far apart from one another. The human being holds them apart, form and substance. In the mineral kingdom, you have crystallization. When, however, we come to an understanding of the plant, then we experience its form by means of our experience of the inside of the thigh bone and its substance by means of the organ of the head, the two-petaled lotus flower. The two experiences have already come a little nearer to each other. And when we experience the animal, then we feel the animal in its form through the experience we have of the inside of the bones of the lower arm. And again we feel its substance through the organ of the head. This time the two are still nearer together. And if we now experience the human being as such, then we experience the human form by means of the inside of the upper arm that is connected through the forming of speech with the brain. I have often spoken of this when giving introductory words before a eurythmy performance. There the two-petaled lotus flower unites with what goes from the inside of the upper arm to the brain, and it is particularly in speech that we experience our fellow human being no longer divided as to form and content, but as one in form and content. This teaching survived in all its concreteness in the time of Aristotle, and as we have said, a trace of it could still be found on into the 19th century. But there we come to an abyss. By the forties of that century, the knowledge was completely lost, and the abyss remained until the end of the century, when the coming of the Michaelic age brought the possibility for these truths to be found again. When, however, humans stepped over this abyss, they were in reality stepping over a threshold, and at the threshold stands the guardian. Between the years 1842 and 1879, people were not able to see the guardian 
when they went past him. But now they must. For their own good they must look back and take note of him. For to continue not heeding him, to live on into the following centuries without heeding him, would lead humanity to complete disaster. We want to speak more about this tomorrow. The end of Lecture 5